ahead and tell you at the outset of this video, I try not to be very political online. That's the honest truth. And it's, it's not because I don't have an opinion on the subject, but because I don't, I don't find online debating, uh, which usually is the result of sharing your views with the world. I don't find uh, doing that online particularly fruitful or constructive in most cases. Personally, I like to reserve those discussions for uh, in-person conversation with folks who I can interact with in real time and uh, who, who can hear my tone and, and I can share my heart with on an issue and vice versa. So um, I'll confess to you, I am a little reluctant to post this video. Um, and yet, I, I happen to know a lot of people uh, online who I don't necessarily have opportunity to meet up with in person, who I am seeing, um, I, I'm, I'm seeing them react uh, to the current political landscape and, and our country's continual shift in a more liberal and, and what appears to be an even more socialist-leaning direction. And, and for the most part, the reaction I'm seeing is one of sincere concern. Um, and, and I can honestly say, as a conservative evangelical, I share those sentiments. I'm also unnerved by the proposed agenda of those on the political left and, and, and even more unnerved by the proposed agenda of those on the far political left. It's not a direction I want the country to go in, especially not uh, for the future of my children. Um, so, so there's a lot of anxiety and, and discouragement in the air, which is why what, what I would like to do uh, here is to offer a word uh, not, not just to try and counter your discouragement with encouragement, but a word to try and counter your anxiety with action. R rather than wringing your hands at all the, the what-ifs of an increasingly socialist America, what, what can you be doing practically on an individual level, on a family level, in the event our country does move further in a socialist and largely secular direction? Obviously, when it comes to the future, none of us ultimately know how things are going to turn out. Um, but, but as they say, the past can be a really good indicator of the future, especially as a society tries to repeat things that have already been tried before. And the example that I'm thinking of right now is, is when conservatives in Britain, uh, nearing the end of World War II, and the great Winston Churchill lost their country's general election to Clement Attlee, and the liberal socialist-leaning Labor Party. Uh, now, you may remember from ninth grade history that in the wake of World War II, Europe was completely shell-shocked, right? Um, its economy was, was hurting, its infrastructure was battered, uh, its supply chain interrupted, and its population was ready to move on. I exactly what nations like Britain would be rebuilt into was the pressing question. And, and as it turned out, a socialist vision of a national welfare state in which the government would lead the charge in all aspects of the nation's recovery ended up being a very attractive option for voters. The Labor Party campaigned on the promise of, of providing better controls on food rationing and, and, and the offer of state-funded programs and services including health care and child care, education, housing, unemployment, uh, disability benefits, unemployment benefits, supplemental retirement pensions, etc., etc. Um, basically, their campaign promise was for the government to take care of its citizens literally from the cradle to the grave. That became their signature 
platform. Um, all the while, Winston Churchill and the conservatives were, were running on a more uh, uh, for, for king and country platform. Churchill's attitude was, yeah, I, I know we're struggling right now and our country's tired, uh, but, but we have got to button up this war. We've got to keep pushing back against the overreach of, of uh, bloodthirsty dictators. We've, we've stopped Hitler's Nazi Germany. Uh, to some degree, uh, we've kept Stalin and the Soviet Union in check with the Great Alliance. L let's, let's hammer the remaining nails in Japan's imperial coffin. Well, uh, as I said, the British people were tired of all the warring, so Attlee's Labor Party took power and, and started implementing everything it had promised. Uh, but by the time it was all said and done, I'm sure a lot of Britons were helped by the new social programs. Uh, the, the only problem is when you create all these government programs, um, you've, you've got to pay for it somehow. That usually is in the form of taxes. But of course, if the private sector and a free market haven't been allowed to do its thing, uh, the, the people can hardly be expected to have the money to pay for those taxes. So, so back and forth, the political pendulum swings. Not long after the Labor Party opened the door to the welfare state and the, and the country tried that out for a few years, Winston Churchill uh, was elected again to a second term, um, advocating for a more traditional and free Britain as opposed to a socialist and dependent Britain. Um, the, the point is the Labor Party's socialist dream wasn't all about a roses. In fact, for, for many of, of Britain's citizens, the government's controls on things like uh, the rationing of food is something that got old really, really quickly, especially since the war was over. Uh, rationing doesn't seem to make sense uh, in peacetime. Well, interestingly enough, one of those British citizens who grew increasingly weary of the rationing was none other than C.S. Lewis, one of the great Christian writers and apologists of the 20th century. And, and, and just to get it out on the table, um, Lewis was, was also the kind of guy who tried to stay out of politics and, and making his opinions known publicly. He, he tried not to do that. In fact, the story is told when Churchill was elected for a second term in 1951, uh, C.S. Lewis was invited by the office of the Prime Minister to receive honors, but he declined that invitation, um, explaining his reasons this way. He said, um, I feel greatly obliged to the Prime Minister, and so far as my personal feelings are concerned, this honor will be highly agreeable. However, there are knaves who would say, and fools who believe that my religious writings are all covert anti-leftist propaganda, and my appearance in the honors list would, of course, strengthen their hands. It is therefore better that I should not appear there. I'm sure the Prime Minister will understand my reasons, and that my gratitude is and will be nonetheless cordial." So. Lewis wasn't a political guy, and he didn't want to be known as a political guy. He was, he was a theologian, and his loyalties were first and foremost to the Lord and his kingdom as, uh, as, as appreciative to Churchill and the conservative party as he was. Um, with that said, he did sometimes reference politics in his letters back and forth with uh, his fan base in America, on several occasions mentioning 
uh, the rationing that was happening there in Britain. It, it was apparently the pattern of many generous Americans to send gift packages across the pond to the people of Britain that included items and products that were uh, simply too expensive to buy or, or, or were outright unavailable to buy in Britain's socialist economy. Um, so being a world-renowned author as C.S. Lewis was, he, he was he was blessed to have several American fans who would regularly send him such care packages. Uh, for example, in a letter he wrote to a Miss Vera Matthews, Lewis once explained some of the things he found most helpful to receive uh, in the mail. He wrote, It is difficult to find any words in which to acknowledge your continued kindness. In sending to those behind Mr. Atley's Iron Curtain, you can never go wrong with meat, tea, and soap. Soap for washing clothes, that is. Why it should be so, I can't imagine, but bathroom soap is never as scarce as the other kind. In a letter he, he wrote to Mr. Warfield Fourier, he wrote, I'm completely at a loss when it comes to thanking you for your last parcel. A ham such as you sent lifts me into our millionaire class. Such a thing couldn't be got on this side unless it was very deep in the black market. And as for the cheese, I found I'd almost forgotten what real cheese tastes like. I and all my friends are very deeply grateful you have given an amount of pleasure which you and your happier country cannot realize. Then not long after, in a second letter to Mr. Fourier, Lewis wrote, When I thanked you for your grand present of the ham... That letter was written before tasting it, and now having done so, I feel that common decency demands further and heartier thanks. The fate of the ham was this. We have a small informal literary club which meets every Thursday for beer and talk, and in happier times for dinner. And last night, having your ham to dine off, we had a meal which eight members attended. The college kitchen supplied soup, fish, and, and a savory. And we had a delightful evening. This, by English standards, is a banquet rarely met with. And all agreed that they hadn't eaten such a dinner for five years or more. And then at the end of that letter, he, he includes a list of, of those who attended this rare dinner party. And I was tickled when I saw that on the list was another famous author we're all familiar with uh, who enjoyed Mr. Fourier's ham and cheese gift. And, and that was J.R.R. Tolkien. So, so how about that? Uh, but then there was the generous gifts of a Mr. Uh, Edward Allen. Lewis thanked him at, at one point writing, Thank you very heartily for not one but two parcels one containing stationery and the other which is so heavy I can hardly lift it containing food. The latter I have not yet opened, but we are licking our lips in anticipation of investigating it later in the day. Here's another one. As, as I contemplate the label of your splendid parcel of the 10th of April, Crisco, beef, ham, and so forth, six lines of it I fall, at least in mind, into the sin of gluttony. I'll give you just one more. Uh, once more, I have sent you my inadequate but very sincere thanks, not only for the tuxedo, but for the impending food parcel. The extent to which your folk, and, and he's talking about Americans there, the extent to which Americans have 
have come to our rescue is amazing and moving. I knew in a general way, of course, that very large quantities of gift, food, clothing, etc. were coming into Britain, but I was nonetheless surprised to read in a recent debate in the House of Lords that every household in the kingdom benefits by American aid and has done so for the past two years. You may well be proud of yourself. The, the, the point of all these letters and the point I'm, I'm trying to get across and quoting them is, is the example of generosity that was extended to those affected by harm, hard times, including hard times arguably complicated by a socialist government, uh, by those that is generosity extended by those less affected by it. For, for struggling Britons in 1945 and, and thereabouts, that was the generosity of free and loving Americans who were more safely and stably positioned on the other side of the Atlantic to offer assistance. Fast forwarding now to modern times, here, here America itself now appears to be going down a more socialist road. And, and the question on a lot of people's minds is what can we expect and, and not just expect, but what can we do in anticipation of, of walking in Europe's footsteps? And, and I'll tell you, one of the things we can do, and, and, and honestly, this applies regardless of who's in control of government, but one of the things we can do is, is to plan to be generous. Plan to be generous. In, in other words, don't leave it up to the government to care for people. Let the church and, and let everyday good Samaritans help care for people. It, it's not the job of Uncle Sam to meet everybody's needs. If a person can't care for themselves, let the body of Christ step up and do what the body of Christ is uniquely commissioned to do. Whether, whether that's feeding the hungry or teaching kids to read or, or giving somebody work or keeping an eye on an elderly neighbor, whatever the need, but before expecting government to meet that need, consider how you can meet the need yourself. Obviously, it, it makes it difficult to meet others' needs when you yourself are a part of the group who has the needs. But uh, assuming you're fortunate enough to be removed from a certain hardship or assuming it's in your ability to remove yourself from a certain hardship, uh, be a Miss Williams or a Mr. Fourier or a Mr. Edwards in your, in your sphere of influence and be about sending care packages to others. In fact, my advice to all those watching, regardless of what direction our country goes in, is to, uh, is to seek to create an ocean of separation between you and dependency on the welfare state. Instead of relying on government to provide your health care, your child care, your education, your housing, your, your income and in seasons of unemployment or retirement, uh, de determine to meet as many of those needs yourself or, or with the help of family or friends or, or your church first. Because listen, the, the less you are dependent on government, the more you're in a position to help others who have no other choice but to be dependent on government. And, 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 and listen, if such a day is coming in America, if, if socialism is in our future, as many on the left desire it to be, 
um, one of the best practical things you can do about it is to create a hedge of independence as, as much as you can from that welfare state. Can socialism help people? Sure it can. Just, just understand it can also make people dependent. And in making people dependent, people are left miserable. Can you and your greater independence help everybody? Of course not. But, but listen, those you do help will truly be helped. Not by giving them a handout, but by giving them a hand up. Or in the words of Winston Churchill, the inherent vice of capitalism is the unequal sharing of blessings. The inherent virtue of socialism is the equal sharing of miseries. So, as much as it depends on you, learn to live independently, and in your independence, learn to live generously. I'll end with the following quote by C.S. Lewis, again writing to one of his generous American friends. Uh, th this one is dated sometime after the Labor Party lost their own re-election bid, bringing Churchill and the Conservatives back into power. Uh, Lewis writes to his friend, I'm afraid it would be sheer dishonesty to pretend that, that we now have any kitchen needs. Uh, this government, you talk about the conservative government uh, that, that's, that's come back into power, has done a magnificent job in getting us back on our feet again. And a few weeks back, we solemnly burnt our ration books. Everything is now off ration. And though at first, of course, prices went up with a rush, they are now dropping. But cheer up, if our friends, the socialists, ever get back into power, you will be able to exercise your unfailing kindness once more by supplying us not with little luxuries, but with the necessities of life. What's the takeaway? The takeaway is be ready, faithful Christian. Be ready, good Samaritan. No doubt uh, America's political pendulum will continue to swing back and forth and a socialist progressive agenda will eventually be pushed to the forefront. And, and when that happens, prepare to be generous. Prepare to be generous. Show the government uh, that they don't have to tax you and your neighbors more to care for the welfare of others. You're capable of helping people just fine on your own. Um, just be sure you do so. I hope this, this video has been helpful. Uh, like, subscribe to our channel if you haven't already. Stay tuned for more videos to come. Until then, God bless and thanks for watching.